please. It's it's already gone. Thank you. <laughs> okay, uh, remember that immediately following our Bible class tonight, we're going to have a going away party for Irene over in the wing. And one reason we have the wing open is because the air conditioner in this section isn't working. They're replacing it. And so we turn the fans up, and we've got air coming in here. But if you get too warm, if you want to get up and go over here where the A.C. is, <laughs> Ken does not belong over there. His place is over there where Vidal is sitting by the hot machinery, but he's got Vidal to do that. But anyway, it's probably a little cooler over there if you want to go over there at any time. Feel welcome to do it. <laughs> and don't forget that next Bible class, Thursday night, is a special time when Moses Amoibiko is going to be here. I hope that y'all will invite some friends and neighbors. You don't very often get a chance to hear Moses. And he's coming into our own backyard, so I hope that y'all all be here and bring some folks because I'm sure it's going to be a blessing for them. Okay, let's prepare ourselves this evening in our usual fashion, a few moments of silent prayer, opportunity to uh, rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your inerrant, infallible, the Word of God that is our guide, it is our weapon, it is our defense. There's very few that pay any attention to it anymore. But those that do are refreshed, they're reinvigorated, they have hope, they have confidence, they know what's coming next, and they know how to execute the Christian way of life. There's so much deception. There's so much false doctrine out there today. We have to be ever vigilant to be ready to give anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that is in us. So we pray that you will help us to focus, that you will help us to drink in full measure the message, your word, this evening. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. In the recent issue of Israel, My Glory, I'll tell you, if y'all aren't getting this, you're missing out. There's so many good things in here. There is a, one of the articles is the push to reinvent Christianity. And then it has gospel, big words under there. And there's just a few things I highlighted that would underscore the importance for us to not only study God's Word, especially getting the Gospel right, but to meditate on it, to internalize what we're learning so that you'll be ready to address any heresy that comes your way. He says, um, The changes that are... Oh, by the, who, who wrote this? Let's see. Uh, Thomas E. Williams wrote this. And he says, The changes are advocated as a way to communicate Christianity's message more effectively to the rest of the generation. These are the changes that people are making with regards to the gospel. He says, If we have a new world, wrote McLaren. Some of you have heard of Brian McLaren, which is advocates rank heresy. He says, if we have a new world, wrote McLaren, we need a new church, a new framework for our theology, a new spirituality. And then uh, there's this lady by the name of Phyllis Tickle. <laughs> and she's the founding editor of the religious department of the Publishers Weekly. And she's talking about this new style of Christianity. 
And she says, this new style of Western Christianity is not hierarchical or based on certain doctrinal system. It's more about community and conversation, not about a set of beliefs and creeds. You get that? More about community and conversation. Uh, McLaren uh, wrote a book called A New Christianity. And it actually promotes as one that takes aim at some core doctrinal beliefs. In his book called Finding Faith, he contended that chapter 2, he says, quote, considers and rejects the religious claim that the Bible or some other document can provide certainty. You have to go outside the Word to find certainty. At the core is the question of whether the Bible should be understood literally. And then he goes on. Then you have this guy named Alan Jones, which is a prominent figure in the uh, Christian community. And he says, uh, there is no <coughs> objective authority, only authority as interpreted by the individual. When people say, back to the Bible, they think there's some objective truth to be found in its pages. In reality, we read the Bible through the filter of our own presuppositions and prejudices. Farmer Dean of Grace Cathedral in San Francisco, Jones believes the Bible should be read as allegory and metaphor, not as literal truth. Now, these guys are well read. There's books, they have books everywhere. He says, we can get to the truth only through inference, through myth and poetry, through metaphor and through storytelling. There's no such thing as what really happened. He said there, uh, <coughs> McLaren says this, he said the same thing. He says, no articulation of the gospel today can presume to be exactly identical to the original meaning proclaimed by Christ and the apostles. In a telling comment on the New Testament, he implied Scripture is true only if it seems to be true to one who's reading it. And he goes on and on. I hope that you can formulate your own arguments about this. Remember when we were looking at the evidence that the Bible is the Word of God? This is what should come to mind when people come out with all this nonsense. That you can go into, do you all remember the evidences? Five different types of evidences. The first one that probably comes to mind is prophecy. There's no other book that has prophecy because no other book was inspired by God and no other, there is no other God that knows the end from the beginning. And, of course, we have the archaeological evidence, scientific evidence, the internal evidence in the Bible itself, how it is, reads as one book, even though it has all these other things. Uh, we have the manuscripts, over 6,000, 60,000 uh, documents, you know, of these manuscripts. I mean, we've got a lot of evidence here that people uh, don't know about and don't think about. Uh, then, this is um, this guy named Jones. He, he has this... Uh, this, 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 excuse me. No, this one is from a guy named Michael Dowd, D-O-W-D. And he wrote a book called Reimagining Christianity. And this is uh, one quote from that book. He says, ultimately, we are saved by grace through faith. Now, if he would have stopped there, we would have said, okay, we can, we can believe that. But he didn't. He said, of course, this doesn't mean that Jews and Buddhists and Muslims and Taoists and Confucians are wrong. Each religious tradition on the planet and every philosophical belief system has unique gifts and limitations. Different religions are like different flowers. Each one has its own special fragrance and beauty. And that makes me want to puke. Oh, it sounds so flowerly and people buy into it. can't believe that people would actually buy this, these books and so forth. Here's a, an article. This, this girl is sitting in the middle of this sign here, and this is going, going from the ape all the way up to the man. And it says, 
how compromise is, pa- compromise is paving the road to apostasy. That's what everybody does these days is compromise. And unfortunately, Christians are doing the same. And his whole point is that uh, this Darwin evolution has crept in to the schools. It's crept in even to churches. And it is absolutely devastating, especially the young people. And this is what he says. He says, A very significant study has revealed that approach, meaning evolution, has had a tragic negative impact on youth who have grown up in Christian homes and attended churches that were otherwise biblically sound. Consequently, a large percentage were already gone in their attitude towards the church before they ever left for college because they're getting this bilge in the public schools about evolution. Then it says, they felt if they could not trust the Genesis creation account to be literally true, then how could they trust the rest of the Bible? That's why the first verse of the Bible is so important. Well, there's, there's a lot more. I think I'll just give you one more here. This one is from, uh, the, it's called Camel's Gnats and the Importance of Doctrine. Now, you ought to be familiar with Christ who says that they uh, strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. My dad used to have a similar term. He would say, there are people who are penny wise and pound foolish. Ever heard that one? Anyway, his whole thrust is that the church is straining at gnats. The little nitpicky little things that they are so adamant about. And yet, like the Pharisees, the foundation of Christian faith, especially the gospel, they give that away as if it's nothing. And so this is just one, this is the last thing I'm going to give you so we can get on with what we're going to do here. Is uh, This is, I, I like polls because they kind of give you a, they put their finger on the pulse of America. And it says, according to a recent Pew poll, most Americans don't understand the doctrinal difference, differences between Mormonism and Christianity. When asked whether Mormons should be categorized as Christians, 51% said yes, 49% said no or don't know. This is just a general public. When pollsters asked the same questions to people identified as white Protestant evangelicals, 35% said yes, 53% said no, and 12% did not know. And then he says, That means that 47% of evangelicals polled neither knew nor cared enough about the doctrines of the Christian faith to realize the core beliefs of Mormonism differs drastically from those of Christianity. Shockingly, the percentage is merely four points away from the 51% of the general population polled that came to a similar conclusion. What is happening, folks? Four percentage points difference is all there was between the general public and Protestant white evangelicals? Something is drastically wrong. Either the preachers aren't teaching it or the people aren't getting it. And then he says, we can only wonder what most Christians really believe about the essentials of the faith. Then he ends it by saying, We are submerged in a flood of misinformation about Jesus, the gospel, and Christianity. And I concur wholeheartedly. That's one reason we're going into what we're doing. Now, we're going to get into where we left off last time. I don't want anybody to groan because I've got something for you to look at tonight. I got tired of seeing all the washboards and suffering going on out there. So I thought maybe this might help. So I was giving you points from this five books of Calvinism, and it is on the chapter dealing with limited atonement. And he makes some audacious claims in this that I was addressing. And I think we need to hit this again, maybe a little... uh, Well, I, I just think if you see it, it will help. 
Is it on over there? Okay. Uh, now, here's the allegation. We're starting from this premise because this is what they believe. Christ did not die on the cross for the sins of all mankind. That is known as the doctrine of limited atonement. Everything stems from there. So you're going to hear, you're going to see some things that you're going to, it's going to make you go like this. Huh? Because we don't subscribe to that. We subscribe to the doctrine of unlimited atonement. What? Thank you. Yeah, that's better. Just two little words, you in. <laughs> just like a decimal point, you know. Just move it a couple of places. doesn't matter. Thank you, sir. All right. Now, uh, these are assertions that come from this false premise. And these are the ones that were made in the book, and these are the ones that I uh, tried to address. Now, here's the first assertion. If Christ died for all the sins of all mankind then every person would be saved. This is an allegation they would say. Because they would say, for one, for one, one of the things they say, I, didn't have, I don't have this written down, but they said, not one drop of Christ's blood was wasted. And if He died for the sins of all mankind, and there's going to be billions of people who are going to hell, then there was a lot of Christ's blood that was wasted. That's an argument they try to make. And it's totally superfluous to the point. So, I gave you a few things. What, what you see in italics is my response to what, they, to, to what they say here. So, the first sub-point A says, uh, it doesn't take into account man, man's volitional responsibility towards the gospel. You see, I've said this over and I'm going to say it again. It all started with the tea and tulip, which was total depravity. And when you buy into the idea that total depravity means that you are totally unable even to accept the gospel, then everything that follows is a train wreck. And that's, that's why they believe this. They don't take man's volitional responsibility towards the gospel. They, some of them would say, well, we're not saying that man doesn't have volition. We're only saying that man's volition is always totally, 100% bent to wickedness and evil. Well, if that's the case, he doesn't have volition. Volition means the prerogative the, uh, to make choices. I had a conversation with a Calvinist one time, and they said, you don't have volition. I said, you know... I'm not a genius, but I do know that I have volition. I can either decide to stay here and talk to you, or I can decide to turn around and leave. And nobody is forcing me either way. It's my prerogative. I have that right. This is part of my soul is volition. And then this person says, Well, Adam was the only one, Adam and Eve were the only two people that ever had free will volition. I said, oh? And they said, yes, that, but when he fell, then your, your will is in bondage to Satan. It's in bondage to evil. And I said, yeah, but you know as well as I do, we make choices every day. She said, yes, but you can't make the choice to believe in Jesus Christ. So I said, what you're saying is, is that I can make choices and decisions on anything and everything in my entire life except one thing, and that one thing is that I cannot believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they said, yes. The most important decision of your whole lifetime would be the only one that you don't have, you're not given the right to make a choice there. Listen, I've had some really interesting conversations with these people. And I, I don't think y'all have done that too much, but I'm trying to prepare you to, to be able to respond to some of these things. And then point B, responding to that Christ died for all the sins. If He died for all the sins of all mankind, then every person would be saved. Point B, no one is condemned for their sins because of Christ's work on the cross. Now, you've got to get this 
2 Corinthians 5.19 and uh, 1 John 2.2 2 down. So you don't have to be struggling when someone makes such an assertion. No one is condemned for their sins. But the fact that no one is condemned for their sins does not mean that everyone is saved. Why? Well, we'll go on with point C. Unbelievers are condemned for rejecting the free gift of eternal life by faith or through faith in Jesus. That's where condemnation is. So it is perfectly rational and biblical that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all, without exception, men, all mankind. He paid the penalty for it. Now, why, is it, why, aren't, why isn't everyone saved? Because a person can either decide to accept his atonement or they can decide to accept their own works. And if they accept their own works instead of Christ's atonement, then they're not condemned for their sins. They're condemned for their unbelief. Now, we'll get to this part we got onto last time about the sin of unbelief. So unbelievers are, are condemned for their rejection of the gospel. A person in this congregation gave me a good, um, a good example. You know that I think the governor, I know the president can pardon people, and I think the governor can too. Yeah, the governor can too. I, I remember. Okay. The president and the governor, according to the Constitution, can pardon people. And when, they, when they, they, they have a document, a formal document, that is the pardon. But you know that that pardon is not valid unless the person for whom it is intended endorses it until they sign on to it. If they don't sign on to it, then they're going to be executed. People on death row, let's say. Because they didn't receive the pardon. And there have been people who have done that. And do you see how that's, of course, you can make the correlation with regards to Christ's atoning work on the cross. Jesus Christ paid for our sins and He is offering all mankind the pardon. And every person that will accept that pardon, He doesn't give us an official document that we must sign. But when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we trust in His Word that we are pardoned. It's the same as endorsing a document of pardon. And then we are indeed pardoned. So Christ went to the cross and paid the sins for all mankind. And the reason that all mankind is not pardoned is because they don't receive the pardon. They rather depend on their own works rather than Christ's work. Then point D, they are condemned for their unbelief. Now we're going to see that this guy is trying to make a case that unbelief was pardoned. The only problem, it wasn't pardoned for everyone. I'll get to that in a minute. Are you all with me so far on this first point? Okay. Second point. I'm not making these up. I got them out of here. These are quotes. If he died for all the sins of all mankind, then he died for the sin of unbelief as well. Is that a true statement? <laughs> I wish you could see your faces. You look like a deer caught in the headlights. Well, that's a trick question. Uh, the fact is that he, he died for all of the sins of mankind except the sin of unbelief. And we're going to address that even more as, as, you, as we go through this. But they, they say that if he died for all the sins, he died for the, sins of, the sin of unbelief as well. And we're going, we, we stand by 
Lewis Berry Schaefer and others who say, no, the only sin that Christ could not die for was the sin of rejecting the gospel, rejecting his atonement. So here's a, here's a, a sub-point to address that. He did not die for the sin of rejecting the gospel. And here's two verses, really important verses. Matthew 12:32. That has to do with the unforgivable sin of rejecting the Holy Spirit, remember? Sinning against the Holy Spirit. Now, everybody, not everybody, but most people I've heard think it's, well, if you curse using the Holy Spirit as the butt of your curse, then, you know, you're going to hell. But what we, what we see in context that the Holy Spirit was performing miracles through Jesus Christ. And the Pharisees claim, no, you're doing, you're doing these miracles under the power of Beelzebub. You're doing it under the power of Satan. So what does that mean they had to be? Unbelievers. They had rejected their Messiah. That is the sin of unbelief. And it's unforgivable. If Christ died for the sin of unbelief, there would be no reason for God to create man in the first place. Do you understand this? Are you connecting the dots on that? The whole point that man was created to resolve the angelic conflict. Satan had impugned the character of God. He sinned against God and Satan says, Well, don't blame me. You made me. It's your fault. He used the volition that God had given him. And so God created a lesser creature, which is man, that also has what? Volition. You take away the volition... And there's no point in anything. He created a lesser creature, man, with volition to demonstrate that just because he gives a creature volition doesn't mean that he's going to use it against God, that he's going to reject God. And then, of course, you know that Adam and Eve rejected God when they ate of the fruit, and Satan thought, oh, I've got him now. And then, of course, Jesus Christ did the ultimate but it would make no sense if God forgave the sin of unbelief. There would be no gospel. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have to have a gospel because it wouldn't be a sin to disbelieve the gospel, to reject Christ. Can you see how absurd that is? Here's the third point. This is what, another point from the book. If, now, this is the one that gets me. If unbelief is unforgivable, then a person who believes in Jesus Christ for eternal life is still condemned for the years he was guilty of unbelief before he accepted the gospel. I have never heard a more insane statement, unbiblical, rank heresy than that one. Well, I, I say here, I'm responding, absolute lunacy. Would Christ die on the cross to save unbelievers and then condemn them when they accepted His atonement because they were unbelievers? Do you get that? He died for unbelievers. And then when they accept His atonement, He can say, oh no, I'm going to condemn you because you're unbelievers, because of your unbelief. Yeah, but we accept, we trust you. you doesn't matter. You're an unbeliever. You're condemned. Can you wrap your mind around that? Do you see how absolutely ludicrous that is? That threw me for a loop when I read it. I thought no one that would ever come up with such absolute insanity. No logic, no reason, no anything there. Number four. They say, Christ died for all the sins of all the elect. You see, that's where they're getting to. They're saying, you, you Christians, you, you people that are not Calvinists, you're not into Reformed theology... You go around boasting that Christ died for all the sins of all mankind. But what, what do we really mean? We don't say it, but it's pretty much understood. Christ died for all the sins of all mankind except the sin of unbelief. That's what we mean. That's the way people take it. 
And so what he's saying, they, they, they stick out their chest and put their fingers under their suspenders and hold them out like this and say, well, Christ died for all the sins of all the elect. That's what, all this was to get to that point. Now, that would that include uh, their previous sin of unbelief before they accepted the gospel? They were unbelievers at one time. Both the elect and the non-elect were are unbelievers before they accept the gospel. But Christ died only for the elect sin of unbelief. Is God fair, just, and impartial, or not? Do you see what what you have to you have to come to that conclusion? People who are elect spend a period of time, I think it would be safe to say, years in unbelief. And what he is saying, if you're not elect, then God holds you responsible for that unbelief since Christ didn't pay for that unbelief. Even after you accept the gospel, he still holds you accountable. And you say, okay, but yeah, but what about the elect? They, had, they were in unbelief for years before they accept the gospel. What about them? What do they have to say? What is he saying? Christ died for all the sin. What does that include? Their sin of unbelief before they were saved, before they believed the gospel. Wouldn't anyone object and start asking, how can that be if God is fair, loving, merciful, just, and impartial? How can God be impartial and do such a thing? Can he? The answer is no, he cannot. One is forced to believe such nonsense if he believes in the doctrine of limited atonement. God would not send his son to die for those that he had already predetermined not to save. You get that? He couldn't. God would not send Jesus Christ to the cross to waste His blood on those that God has already predetermined, foreordained not to save. When Christ went to the cross, He didn't go to save all mankind. He only went to save the elect. And you say, how could that be? You know what the answer is? It's a mystery. It's inscrutable. And who are you to judge God? I can tell y'all hadn't had that treatment yet, have you? Point five. These are a couple of... I've just kind of lumped these together. That God does not save all proves that God did not die for all. Ever heard that one? Christ could not bear the sins of men without saving them. Do you get what that is? See, we allege, we say from the Bible, and we can go to Romans chapter 5 and prove it, that Jesus Christ bore the sins of men who wind up not being saved. And they would say, no, that couldn't be, because if that's the case, Christ failed on the cross. It's just like two people talking different languages because neither one is listening to the other. Usually that's the way it is. Christ could not bear the sins of men without saving them. And I say, no, He can. Not only can He, but He did. How do I know that? Because I know 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He's given to us the word of, recon- of reconciliation. That's what the Bible says. Now, if I'm, I, I submit to you, if Jesus Christ did not pay for the sins of the non-elect, he would most certainly hold their sins against them because he is a just holy, 
righteous God. He cannot wink at sin. Here's another one. The fact that many are in sin and Satan's bondage proves that God made no ransom for them. Had He done so, they would be delivered. They would say the fact that there's people out there that are in bondage to sin and they're under Satan proves that Christ did not die for them. Because if He died for them, they would certainly be delivered. And I want to shout out, what about the choice that God gives man to make? Every person that takes a breath has to decide one of two things. First of all, they have to decide if they're interested in having a relationship with God. I mean, people who are mentally unable to understand the concept of the cross are exempt because the whole ball of wax, everything hinges on your decision. Are you going to accept Jesus Christ and His atonement? Or are you going to reject Jesus Christ and stand on your own good works? That's what the whole choice is for mankind. It's a choice that you have to make. And every person is either going to decide at God consciousness, they know that man didn't create all this, and if they say, well, I don't care. If I look further into it, there's probably going to be someone that's going to rain on my parade. I like to party hardy, and it's going to be a bummer, and I don't want to go any further. Well, they have that prerogative because God gave them that freedom of choice. But that means if you're wherever you are on the planet, it's possible you won't even get the gospel because you already proved that you're not interested in God. But if you do want to know this Creator then God is going to get the gospel to you. In the past, He's even used angels to do it. And then it's an issue, are you going to accept Jesus Christ? Or are you going to pass on that and stand on your own good works? Point number six. Adam's sin did not make condemnation possible. It condemned all men. Would we agree to that? Yes, we would. And where do you find that? Romans chapter 5. But Now, why did he make that statement? Look at it again. Adam's sin did not make condemnation possible. It condemned all men. Christ's atonement did not make salvation possible. It saves all that God intends to save. In other words, he's saying, he's trying to attack those who would say that Christ's sacrifice on the cross made salvation possible for all mankind. And we say, yes, we sign on to that. And he's saying, no. He said, just as Adam's sin did not make condemnation possible, it was a reality they were all condemned. And now he's trying to make a parallel to that. And in the same way, Christ's atonement did, make, did not make salvation possible it saved all that God intended to save. And we say, yeah, yeah, but. That sounds good if you're an elect. If you're one that God chose, you might say, well, <laughs> whew, I'm sure glad He chose me. Uh, the rest of you, you're on your own. I, I'm sorry about that. That's not the God that we know. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 5. That's where some of the battleground is, and I want to show you a few things. Romans chapter 5, verse Romans 5.12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, the sin there would be the old sin nature, entered the world, passed on to all others, and death, which would be spiritual death, through sin, and so death, spiritual death, spread to all kinds of men. Because all sinned. Is that what it says? Did I add a word in there? What did I add? 
kind. It didn't say all kinds of men, did it? It says all men, period. So we get from that when Adam sinned, his action resulted in all mankind, everyone who ever took a breath, lest Jesus Christ was condemned for Adam's sin. It's not talking about all kinds of men, all races of men, rich men, poor men, smart men, dumb men. No, it's all. Okay? Alright? Go to verse 15. What is it? What's the first word there? You have a contrastive conjunction, but. He's going to make a, a contrast now. But the, what? Free gift is not like the transgression. For if by one transgression of the one, which would be Adam, the many died, what does the many mean? We just saw it. What, what does many mean? It means all, doesn't it? All without exception. So, but the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, Adam, Many, meaning all died, then we have much more, which is an a fortiori expression that it stands with greater reason than much more did the grace of God and the gift of grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to what? The many, meaning what? All. It has to balance. You can't have many meaning all when the all men are condemned and then say when it goes to Christ and hey, you have the many in the same sentence and say, no, it just means some, not all. You got it? Go down to verse 17. Verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, who is that? Adam. Death, what kind of death? Spiritual death. Reigned through the one. And what do we have here? Another, much more. It's an, another a fortiori expression here. With greater reason then. Those who receive the abundance of grace. What does that do? What does that phrase do? Those who receive the abundance of grace. It's limiting it to those who accept the gospel. So it says, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So the ones who receive the abundance of grace, what, is the, what does it mean there, receive the abundance of grace? It means accept the gospel. Those who accept the gospel will reign through the one, Jesus Christ. And then we have verse 18. So then, as through the one transgression, there resulted condemnation to who? All men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to what? All men. Does that mean all men are saved? No. It means exactly what it says. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. That means that justification to life is available for all men. Verse 19. For as through the one, Adam... Man's disobedience, the many, I think the many there means the human race. The many, the human race, were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, Jesus Christ, the many, again, I believe it means the human race, will be made righteous will be made righteous. Does that mean that everyone is going to believe in Jesus Christ? No, it means the potential is there. You have many and many. What I'm trying to show you here is if 
Paul is trying to compare the condemnation that went to Adam and he's making it equivalent to the salvation that is available for all mankind. It's all in all. It's not all men were condemned by Adam's sin, and only the elect is the ones that Christ died for. Because here you would have all, and here you would have some, and it, it's got to balance. He, he's, he, it's just like math, he's got an equation, it's got to, to equal out. And to say that for, what, what Paul is not saying is that all mankind without exception are condemned by Adam's sin, and with greater reason on that same wavelength, then we deduce that some men are saved by Christ's atonement. It doesn't work, does it? I thought that would help clarify, and from what I look in your faces, I wish I hadn't gone there. Do you have any questions? Can you formulate what the problem is? Is that confusing or is that clear? Well, I've learned when I get to this situation, move on. So I'm going to move on. Now, remember, uh, we had, when we were talking about this book saying that if you believe the gospel, God still holds you accountable for the time that you were in unbelief before you believed the gospel. And we said, how could anyone reconcile that? He gives the scripture, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 15. So I said I was going to explain that to you, so I'll explain it to you. Let's go to Ecclesiastes. Okay, we'll start with verse 12 to kind of put it into context, okay? Are y'all ready? <laughs> Ecclesiastes is right after Proverbs. Proverbs is right after the Psalms. Go to the middle of your Bible, turn right, and go two books. Ecclesiastes. Okay. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor, it is the gift of God. Verse 14. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear Him. Now, here's the verse. That which has been already, and that which He has already, which has already been, for God seeks what has passed by. Now, you probably don't understand that. And this is supposed to <laughs> be the reason why God holds you accountable for your unbelief even after you receive the gospel. Let me shed a little light on this for you. What verse 14 is talking about is that God seeks to repeat the plan, His plan, His order, and His design that He set up in the past and this repeats over and over again. What it's saying is God chases himself in a circle like a dog chasing his tail. I know, I see y'all squinting. You, what you have to remember, this is Ecclesiastes. 
written by Solomon. It starts out, vanity of vanities. What this book is all about is what Solomon thought when he was in carnality, when he was in reversionism. And this is what he's saying. But now, with that in mind, what he's doing, and I'm going to show you just a few verses down just how wacko he is in saying this bunch of clap trap. Oh, it's in the Bible. Yes, it's in the Bible. God is showing us how ridiculous we are when we start trusting in our own wisdom and forsake His Word. Now look at it again. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take away from it, for God has so worked that men should fear Him. In other words, there's nothing new under the sun. Everything that's happened in the past will continue to happen. God set it up that way. It's His order, and it just goes round and round in a circle, and it's vanity of vanities. That's what he's saying. And so in verse 15 he's saying, that which has been already, those, all, all the history, you know, you've heard history repeats itself. There's nothing new under the sun. Everything that has happened in the past, that which is already, that has been already, and that which will be, in other words, and those things that are going to take place in the future, that which uh, will be, has already been. In other words, it's just going to repeat itself. Blah! I mean, this is extremely pessimistic. There is no hope here. There is no personal sense of destiny here. There is no glorification of God here. He's complaining. Then he says, for God seeks what has passed by. That's where he is alleging God is chasing his tail. Now, I'm going to prove to you here. Now, some of you, I don't know that, that you knew that this is what Ecclesiastes for the most part is. But let's just drop down a few verses to verse 18. Three verses later, look what he says. Now, he's in the same frame of mind. He gets to verse 18 and he says, I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. You're just like an animal. And then look what he says. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one so dies, the other. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beasts. For all is vanity. All go to the same place. All come from the dust and all return to the dust. Who knows that the breath of the man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth? <coughs> Solomon, the wisest man of his time, got his eyes off the Lord. And he started seeking foreign women. And they twisted his mind. He's responsible. Do you see what I'm telling you? Do you understand what he's saying now in Ecclesiastes 3.15? He's complaining that everything's the same. God's just chasing his tail. Everything that has been is going to reoccur in the future. It's all vanity of vanities. We're just like dogs. We're just like animals. When they die, they go into the dirt. When we go into, we go into the dirt, we're no different than animals. Who, who says that when we die, our, our breath, our soul goes up above and the, and, the, and the animals don't? Who says that? Is any of that true? Is that what the Word of God says? Oh, but this is the Word of God. Listen, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. I got into the Worldwide Church of God one time because they went into this same verse. There's another place in Ecclesiastes that goes over this same thing. And they say, when you die, you cease to exist. And they went to this verse to prove it. And I thought, that can't be right. You know what they said? It's in the Bible. I didn't have enough knowledge to know 
that this was God speaking to us how foolish a person can become when they get into carnality and reversionism. And they're no longer seeking God. So, what am I telling you? This guy is taking this verse to prove that God holds you responsible for the years of unbelief even after you have accepted the gospel. And I'm telling you, that whole thing is a train wreck. I'm surprised that anybody could be this twisted. I, I, I don't, it's no attack against this God. I'm not attacking Him, but He certainly isn't, as far as I'm concerned, attacking the character of our great, perfect, merciful, loving God. And I, for one, am not going to stand by and say, well, He has His opinion and I have mine. That's what most people do. It's okay. And I'm saying it's not okay. No, we don't have to go look up His address and punch His lights out. We're not to do that. Of course not. But we are to be able to stand up to this and demonstrate from the Word of God that it is absolutely fallacious. Can you do it? If anybody goes to Ecclesiastes 3.15 to prove anything, I think hopefully you will recognize. I can show you right here. I have it circled in red right here. This is what he says. Of course, the implication is that if we repent of our unbelief and believe on Christ, we are no longer guilty of unbelief. Our belief has vanished, but God requires that which is past. Ecclesiastes 3.15. And the fact that we now believe does not overlook the fact that we were for many years guilty of unbelief and that sin has never been dealt with by Christ's death. Then we are all lost from our least to the greatest, for we are still guilty of our old sin of unbelief in Christ. And this is even after you've accepted the gospel. And you go to the next paragraph and he's, he's making the case, oh, but that doesn't apply to the elect. Now, give me a break. Oh, I didn't look at the clock. I guess I should have. <laughs> um. We'll continue this next time. Yes, Vidal. Well, I would too if I was an atheist. <laughs> if I was an agnostic, I would do the same thing. I would go to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 19. Who knows that the breath of an animal goes into the ground, the breath of man goes up? Who knows that? Well, nobody can know it. Agnostic, that's the negative alpha above, uh, before it, no such, which means knowing. It means not knowing. And I've never seen so many people so proud of the fact that they don't know. Can we know? Of course we can know. Okay, well, we'll continue this, not Thursday night. Thursday night we are going to have Moses here, and we'll continue this next Tuesday. Can y'all remember this stuff till next Tuesday? I don't have to go over this again, do I? I mean, I have to go to the dentist more than once sometimes, but I don't like to have to go. <laughs> I know, I have to repeat, but y'all, you know... There's no big mirror for you to see what I'm looking at. I'm seeing, I'm seeing a lot of suffering souls out there. If nothing else, you can say at least he makes us think. And that's what we're supposed to do, is think through these things. Let's close. Father, thank you for this time. We thank you that your word clarifies all these things and that you are a God of love and mercy and grace. We pray that you will help us to formulate in our own souls, internalize these doctrines, the doctrine of unlimited atonement, so that we can stand against those who would impugn your character and desecrate your grace. We pray that you will help us to meditate upon these things 
that you'll be with us now as we go into a time of fellowship. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.